Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Joshua chapter 5. Go ahead and turn there with me if you would. Joshua chapter 5. It's great to be with you. I had an awesome, awesome PowerPoint. <clears throat> it was a killer. And it got killed. Eager Beavers got the uh, projector up. Good news. They're making progress on the other auditorium. Bad news. No PowerPoint. Kids. It was my main hope at keeping you guys excited. So I've got to compensate now. <clears throat> Not my wheelhouse. That's okay. Joshua chapter 5. First of all, I want to thank you guys so much for all the kindness and love that you showed me and my family, to all our family during my dad's uh, recent passing. And you guys uh, truly showed the love of Christ to me, to my family. And I'm so blessed to be a part of the body of Christ with each one of you. So thank you. Uh, I don't know, I really don't know for sure if my dad is watching uh, up from up in heaven or if he can see us. I'm not taking any chances. Suit, coat and tie is staying on. <laughs> I don't care if it's Sunday school for all ages. So Joshua chapter 5 verses 13 to 15 we're going to be talking about Jericho. There was a big slide that says, Jericho, a story about God. The story of Jericho is a story about God. Let's look at verses 13 to 15 of chapter 5 together. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, Joshua was by Jericho, scoping out the city, trying to figure out what his strategy is going to be. He lifted up his eyes and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? The man said, no, but I, am for the, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. When Joshua was confronted with the holy God of Israel, he fell on his face and he worshiped and he asked, what does my Lord say to his servant? And as we come here this morning, even if it's Sunday school for all ages, we're going to use the book for all ages, the book of all ages that tells us about the rock of all ages and I hope that you guys with me this morning can ask what does the Lord say to my servant whether you're uh there's a there's a cute kid over here there he was he's gone uh Nolan's I think uh I don't care if you're that age or you're 100 years old here today the answers that we need to be seeking out are found in this this book this book contains the promises of God. It contains the oracles of God, Romans says. First Timothy tells us that this book right here is breathed out by God. God breathed out the very words of this book, and it is profitable for your instruction and for my instruction and to make you grow up and learn how to be a follower of Christ. And no matter what age you are, we communicate differently to different ages. I get it. And different cultures, different personalities, there's different ways to try to, to engage. But no matter what we are, no matter how we communicate, we need to make sure what we're communicating is God's word. For this is where the power is 
found. This is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Isaiah says it does not return void. In other words, it goes out and it comes back doing exactly what it meant to do. Jeremiah says that this book right here is like a fire that burns and it's like a hammer that breaks. So Isaiah says it goes out, comes back, does what does doing, having done what it meant to do. And Jeremiah says it's a hammer. So what does that sound like to you guys? I don't know who some of you, I don't know who your, uh, some of your favorite uh, superheroes are. One of mine is Thor, right? And he's got that giant hammer that he throws out and it goes and like destroys everything and then comes flying right back to his hand, right? And he's usually like flexing with his knee down on the ground and then he throws his hair back <laughs> with his giant hammer. If you want to swing a hammer like that, learn this book. Read this book. This is where the power to change our lives is. And the Bible will meet us, whether you're two years old or 102, the Bible meets us exactly where we're at. But it does not intend to leave us there. It tends to meet us where we're at and then move us and make us. To move us closer to Christ and to make us more like Christ. So if you're old enough to read, you're old enough to read this book. And if that's all you get from me this morning, praise the Lord. I hope he drives it into, you, into each one of our hearts so we're looking at Jericho this morning, the story of Jericho, which I think is kind of an exciting story, but maybe not for all the reasons that we normally think. And I hope that as we look at Jericho, we'll come away with a bigger view of who God is. Because no matter how big your view of God is this morning, no matter how big my view of God is this morning, it's not big enough. It always needs to be bigger because he is beyond our comprehension first, I have a question for you guys about Jericho, and I'm going to, we got the fire, the trees, there's no PowerPoint, but we've got other things, <clears throat> and uh, hopefully I don't ruin any of this. What do you think Jericho's mascot would be? I think mascots are kind of cool. I kind of find them interesting. What do you think Jericho's mascot would be? We've got the Cedar Falls Tigers, Waterloo Bucks, you and I Panthers. What do you think? The horns? I don't know if the Jericho people want to identify with the horns that broke down their walls, but you're on the right track. How about you? The Jaguars. I like that. Two J's. Got the Jayhawks. I was thinking the Jayhawks, too. Some of you can. The Jaguars, Jayhawks, Javelins. A lot of good ideas. There's some crazy mascots out there, right? Uh, some of that we have here in the U.S., Wake Forest Demon Deacons. I know most of the deacons here. I don't think I would describe any of them as demons, but maybe you guys have been at a church where they had some demon deacons. <laughs> you can ask Tony. That's from his neck of the woods over there in Wake Forest. You, you know, North Carolina still, University of North Carolina School of Arts fighting pickles. <laughs> we got the Santa Cruz banana slugs. The South Arkansas Mule Riders. Nothing says higher education like mule riders, right? And then my favorite, the Ohio Wesleyan Battling Bishops. Like, that's just something. I want to go buy their hat or something, and like a battling bishop. Uh, Mary Baldwin College Squirrels. That, that mascot must have been picked up by the faculty there. They had one class, and they're like, what's our mascot going to be? And like, uh, squirrels. We got a bunch of squirrels. That could be like the mascot of my house. 
Delta State fighting okra. Sounds like a heartburn commercial to me. And then the Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington fighting missionaries. I don't know if that's still their mascot or not. That sounds like a tough one to maintain in this day and age. But the fighting missionaries of Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. But maybe Jericho's mascot could have been the wall builders. Right, these guys had some pretty impressive walls. They had pictures. They thought, the thought is they had two walls. The outer one is about six feet thick, so about a little longer than this table here. And then another wall behind it that was about 12 feet thick. So two walls, six feet, 12 feet thick. And the Jericho people would stand up on the walls and look down at whoever was coming up to the city or walking around it. So maybe they could have been the wall builders. Or maybe they could have been the hilltoppers, like University of Western Kentucky hilltoppers. Because Jericho stood up at the top of this steep hill. And anybody coming up to Jericho would have to go up this hill to their two big walls. And then if they're trying to take over the city, they have to do all that while the people of Jericho are shooting down on them with arrows or throwing rocks at them or dumping hot tar on them or whatever it was they did back then. So maybe they could have been the hilltoppers. Or maybe the gatekeepers would be another one. They had this big old gate that they barred and they locked it and closed it shut. And they wouldn't let anybody come in or out of the city. Nobody's in and out. They had gatekeepers there watching to make sure nobody came in or out. Or maybe they could have a mascot like one of their uh, pagan gods. So the people of Jericho had a whole bunch of gods. Maybe they could have picked their favorite fake god and made him their mascot, like the, the bales or the calves or the bulls or I don't know, something like that, something maybe a little more impressive than the calves. Uh, maybe they could have been something really passive, so what did the Jericho people do? They locked the doors, they built their walls, and then they, they holed up in there. And they just watched as the Israelite mar army marched around them. They just sat there and they watched. So something may be really passive. I've looked up a couple of lists of the most passive animals that there are. And if you guys do that, you find usually sloths, panda bears, and then usually the top one is a koala bear. Each time, a koala bear, the most passive animal around. I have been called a koala bear in my own home. And one of the nice girls in our church here after VBS, I think it was last year, or Warwana, I think she told me thank you for speaking. And then she told me she liked my brother way more than me, <laughs> which I've heard before, but still shocking. And so I asked her why. She says, because he's funny and you're not. <laughs> but... You know what is funny? Fighting koala bears. If you want to look up on YouTube, fighting koala bears sometimes. That's fairly entertaining to see two passive, grumpy koala bears trying to fight with each other. Not right now. Don't do it right now. <clears throat> but that could have been their mascot, the Jericho fighting koala bears. You know the reason they are holed up in that fortress is because God had prepared them for the people of Israel to get there. They were scared to death of the Israelites because God had prepared them. In Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, Rahab told the spies when there, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, 
our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And then in Joshua chapter 5 verse 1 it said, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites over by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So God had prepared the way for the people of Israel and he had prepared the enemy And remember in your life as well that God is always preparing the way for you, even when you don't realize it, even when you don't know about it. Kurt just told us a little bit about how God's prepared his way. So trust and obey, right? In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. He will prepare the way for you. But God had also been preparing some other characters, a lot of interesting characters in his story, and we could probably... We could definitely spend a lot of time on some of these, but we're not going to. Who do you think you are in this story? Like, who would you guys like to be? Peter, the story of Jericho, who would you like to be? Joshua. That makes sense. Joshua sounds like a good one, doesn't he? He was the commander of the Lord's army, the new. He had just taken over after Moses had died. He was the general of the army. Pretty cool. Well, God had prepared Joshua for this job. And you know how God prepared Joshua to be the commander of his army, the commander of his people, and to lead them into the promised land? It wasn't by teaching him how to be the best at swinging a sword. And it wasn't by giving him the brains to come up with the most brilliant weapons or the greatest strategies to take this over. The way that God prepared Joshua to be a great man of God was by teaching him to trust and obey. Trust and obey. And obey. You can look back at the victories Joshua won. The one where he was down there fighting in the valley and Moses is up on the hill with his arms up in the air. And no matter what cool moves Joshua pulled off with his sword, if Moses' arms started to drop down, then Joshua would lose. And you're like, he's, got, he's like, it doesn't matter how hard I try. If Moses doesn't hold his arms up, I lose. If that doesn't teach you not to rely on your own strength and instead to rely on God's strength... Uh, I don't know what will. Joshua had learned and Joshua had been prepared to trust and obey. Maybe you don't identify with Joshua this morning. Maybe he's not your cup of tea. Maybe you feel like you fit in more as one of the people of Israel. One of the people who had just wandered through the wilderness for 40 years and was finally going to be able to get into the promised land. But God had prepared them too to trust him and obey him. Through the miracles, right? There was quail, they had manna every morning, they had water coming from rocks, they had stuff happening on Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, and then there was the Jordan River crossing. They could, a lot of them could remember the Red Sea crossing still, and even stuff that happened in Egypt. And right before they got to Jericho, God made sure that they re-celebrated the Passover, reminding them of what he had done for them in Egypt. So the people of Israel had been prepared too by learning to trust and obey. Maybe you'd rather be Rahab in this story. Rahab, no? Okay, no, that makes sense. You wouldn't want to be Rahab. Uh, she, the Bible has a lot of great things to say about Rahab. Uh, and we could do a whole sermon on Rahab. My very first car was named Rahab. I got a 1999 Chevy Lumina LTZ, dark green. 
uh, it had been a rental car and uh, for a while and it had been wrecked a couple of times and I bought it for 500 bucks, fixed it up. Isaac helped me with it too and redeemed her. And uh, she went from life as a rental car to got me through my last year of college and then through medical school too. So I have a soft spot in my heart for Rahab. She grew up in a wicked city. She had wicked friends, wicked parents, pagan gods all around her. Nobody around her knew who the Lord God was. She had never seen any of the miracles that the Israelite people had seen. She had only heard about some of them. And how did she respond? With faith in God. Faith in God. She truly was a woman of great faith. And the Bible refers to her as that in the New Testament, Hebrew and James as well. So who do you think you are in this story? God has prepared each one of the characters for their place in history or for their place in his story. So who do you think you are? Think about that for a second. Let's look at Joshua chapter 6 and see where this goes. Let's read about the battle of Jericho. Joshua chapter 6 verses 1 through 7. So Joshua was sitting there outside scoping out the city. The uh, commander of the Lord's army, probably uh, actually Jesus, came up to him and, and started to give him instructions. So you can start to see jo Joshua. I don't know if he had a chalkboard or something he's taking notes with. So God says, uh, now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. And Joshua's like, yes, sounds good. What are we going to do? He's like, well, you shall march around the city. All the men of war going around the city once. Josh's like, okay, good. Surround the city. That sounds great. I like that. Okay. Uh, Thus you shall do for six days. Interesting. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Okay, good. We got the ark in there. I wanted to make sure we had that. Let's see. On the seventh day, God says, you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. Hmm. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. You see Joshua raising his hand here and being like, did I miss something? What about our cool swords and our, and our spears and our... Our bows and arrows. No, Joshua had learned to trust and obey. What's the very next thing it says? So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and he said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. Whatever strategy Joshua had come up with, whatever him and his generals had thought of, they scrapped it right there, and they adopted a strategy of obedience. A strategy of obedience. And whatever you want to accomplish in your life, the very first step, the very first strategy needs to be obedience. Because the world is full of people who did great things for God simply by obeying and by trusting him. And if you want God to do great things in your life, Trust him and obey him, and he'll do whatever he wants to do. Let's see a little more details here. Joshua gives us a little more. Verses 8 through 11, it says, Just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord, which was the ark of the Lord. What is the ark of the Lord? 
You guys know what it is. The box has a seraphim on top. There's some stuff inside of it. But it represented the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant represented God. So whenever you see the Ark of the Lord in here, think God's presence. All right, where are we at? Uh, Armed men walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp, and they spent the night in the camp. So let's... Check out this procession here. So who's in front of the procession? This whole lineup of soldiers. We got a whole bunch of soldiers or guards. And then right in the middle we have the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God. And there's seven priests, just seven priests. We have a whole bunch of soldiers and just seven priests with their horns. And then behind them we have a whole bunch more soldiers. So what's right in the middle of it? What do you think? Uh, Yeah. Ark of the Covenant's right in the middle. Everyone else has to be completely silent. The city's about a mile long, a little less than a mile around, so it's not a huge thing. It's more like a fortress, more like a giant castle. It's a little less than a mile all the way around, and they couldn't say a single word. No, I'm hungry. Are we around the city yet? Right? No, I gotta go potty. Nothing, none of that. Right? My elbow hurts. They couldn't say any of that. They had to keep completely silent. And what was making noise the whole time? Those trumpets, those seven priests with their trumpets. And where were those guys at? Right in the middle, right? Right in front of the ark. So if you're standing up on that big city of Jericho, if you're standing up on the walls and you look down and you see all these soldiers completely silent, and behind them a whole bunch more soldiers completely silent, and then you have these seven guys blowing horns right in the middle, where's your attention going to be? On the guys making all the noise, right? We could get a whole bunch of you kids up here in a row, and we won't do it. But, and, and we could have just the ones in the middle scream and yell and make as much noise as they could. Who's going to get all the attention? The guys screaming and yelling right in the middle, right? And that's how God lined up this procession. All the attention was on the ark of the God, or ark, the ark of God. That was the whole focus of this thing. It wasn't on how how big the soldiers' muscles were. It wasn't on how shiny their armor was or how sharp their spears were. All of the focus and the attention God wanted on the Ark of the Covenant. Let's read verses 15 to 21. Or I'm sorry, 12. 12, uh, did we read 12 yet? Nope. Joshua rose early in the morning. If you guys read Joshua, you'll find he is always doing this. He's always getting up early in the morning. I've told my girls... Find yourself a guy who knows how to get up early in the morning and not just to go hunting, to do other things too. Nothing against hunting. If that's the only time you get up early in the morning, it's not impressive. Anyway, Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The ark of the Lord is mentioned 10 times in this chapter alone. That's God's whole focus of this procession here. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on and they blew the trumpets continually and the armed men were walking before them and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. And then on the seventh day in verse 15 we see them continue to obey every single detail. 
And we see that Joshua's whole general thing, I mean, general sounds pretty cool, right, Peter? Commander of the army, he's basically a line monitor. That's what he did. He lined people up and he made sure they walked in the line the right way, no make, making no noises. So if you guys, any line monitors out there, like Joshua could have been on one of those progressive commercials, right, about how not to be your parents. The one where he's like, we don't need to monitor the lines here. Joshua was monitoring the line. Let's see, 15 to 21. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Side note on Rahab again, she could have escaped with the spies. When she left, not only did she have the faith to follow their God, but she had the faith to stay in the city of Jericho. Why? So she could share the message of the God of Israel with her family and get her brothers and her sisters and her parents to be saved with her. Joshua says, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Finally, finally, verse 20, the battle part. Like, I like war movies, always have liked war movies, and I was really bummed whenever there was a movie that looked like it was a war movie, and then you'd watch it and be like, there's no war in this. It's all about some guy and some girl and boring stuff. No explosions. The story of Jericho is kind of like that. But it's still exciting. The battle part's really small here. Verse 20 says, So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. So finally got to the battle part. It wasn't much of a battle, was it? Shane, not much of a battle, right? I mean, the walls fell down. They had the whole thing surrounded. All the army guys just went straight up into the city. Not much is said. So the focus, the fo God's focus on this whole Jericho story was not the battle. Like we just spent 20 verses talking about things, not the battle. We spend two verses talking about the battle. And then let's see, we've got five more, six more verses here where Joshua talks about them saving Rahab and her family. They stayed outside the camp for a little while until they became a part of Israel. And actually Rahab became one of the great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus. Yeah, Rahab the prostitute from the pagan city of Jericho became one of Jesus' great, great, great something or other grandmothers. It's a pretty cool story. And that's it. That's the story of Jericho. But I've got some questions. I don't know if you guys do. Like, why is the whole focus of this story on the ark of God? And why were they walking circles around the city? And why did they walk around it seven times on the last day? What was the point that God was trying to get across 
with this story because God always has a purpose. We oftentimes don't see it. or We may see one purpose and he's got like a million other purposes happening at the same time. And a lot of times we just have no idea what God's purpose is when we're in the middle of our life, when we're on Tuesday afternoon doing whatever we're doing and we're wondering what is God's purpose in this because God always has a purpose. There is nothing purposeless that happens in our lives or in this world. God is always working his purposes, whether we realize it or not. So what was this whole point of walking around the city every day for six days, and then the seventh day, walking around it seven times? Another question, why didn't the Jericho people just surrender? They were scared to death. They had no spirit to fight. Why didn't they just surrender? Like, was that against the rules back then? I don't know. I don't think so. You could read some more in Jer- uh, through Joshua and find that there was other peoples that came up with some other ideas besides fighting them. Why didn't they just surrender? Those are good questions. And whenever we have questions about God's word, the best place for us to look is in God's word. Whenever you have a question about God's word, the best place to look is in God's word. So let's look at his word and see if we can answer these questions. And we're going to go back a little bit in time to when God picked the people of Israel. Genesis chapter 12 verse 3, God picked Abram and told him he was choosing him to be the father of his people, to set him apart for God. And he told him that one of the reasons he was doing that was so that all the people of the earth would be blessed through Abram and through his family. Now, that's points ahead to Jesus Christ, but it included the time before Jesus Christ, too. God picked the people of Israel to use them to bring everybody on the whole earth to himself, or to point them to himself. He wanted to bless the people of the earth through the people of Israel. Next, look at, we could look at 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon was dedicating the temple he had just built, and he prayed at the dedication of the temple of God. And he prayed, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. That sounds kind of like Jericho, doesn't it? They had heard of his great name, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm from a foreign country. Well, Solomon prayed, he says, when he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven with your ears, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel. So God's desire for all the people of the earth is that they would know his might and know his name and that they would call upon him. God's, God's heart toward the people of the earth is that they would come to him, even in the Old Testament. And the reason he chose the people of Israel was to use them to point, use them all to point all others to himself. So what's that have to do with them walking around in circles around the city? Let's look at the New Testament, Acts 17, verses that would be up on our PowerPoint. I'm sorry. Acts 17 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. Again, sounds kind of like Jericho, doesn't it? 
he had fixed the day upon he was going to judge them by the man he had appointed, Joshua. He's commanding all men everywhere to repent. Second Peter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Brothers and sisters and boys and girls, could it be the reason that God was walking circles around Jericho day after day and for seven times on the seventh day, the last day was because he was showing them his patience. Because he was showing them his mercy. Because he is a God of mercy. And he is not willing that any should perish. If you look back again in Genesis to chapter 15, we see that God says part of the reason he kept Israel captive in Egypt for 400 years. Remember that? They had been in Egypt. They just came out. They crossed the Red Sea, the Jordan River. They wandered in the wilderness. 400 years he had kept them. And in Genesis 15, it says the reason they were there, one of the reasons they were there was because the sin of the Amalekites, which included Jericho, the sin of the Amalekites was not yet complete. What's that mean? He had been giving them time, time to repent, 400 years. And then right before Israel came up to destroy, the, destroy Jericho first, what happened? They got turned around and they wandered back in the wilderness for 40 more years. And then when they came back and they finally get to Jericho, they march around his city with the ark of God. And what happens? They do that for six days. And on the seventh day, they did it seven times. So there was 400 years he'd waited, then 40 more years, and then seven days. And on the seventh day, he marched around seven times, showing them his mercy and his patience. Yes, he is mighty, and he is holy. And the more we see his holiness and his might and his power, the more in awe of his mercy we will become. Because his heart is mercy. He has a heart of mercy. He was so patient and long-suffering, he offered them chances at repentance over and over and over again, yet only one woman, one woman, saw who he was. And instead of just shaking in fear and hiding behind their walls that they had made, one person recognized him as God and feared him and then called on him and followed him. And identified herself with him in a land where she was the only one. For the God who is mighty to judge sin is also mighty to save. He is mighty to save. And his might is always exercised with a heart of mercy. So what does the Bible tell us about the mercy of God? And this is what I want to talk to you about. I've only got a couple minutes left. I know, Jackson. It's okay. Uh, the mercy of God. These verses would be up here. Go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2. Kind of hold those two spots in your Bible. Deuteronomy 4.31, though, says, we're just going to run through these. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Second Chronicles 30, verse 9. 
For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Psalm 86, 15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 111 verse 4 says, He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Psalm 145 9 says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. His mercy is over us all. Daniel 9 Verse 18, Daniel prayed, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. None of us measures up to God's holiness. No matter how hard we try, none of us will ever be good enough. Like the sign says, right, we all fall short. So it's not because of anything good that we do that we can come before God. It is only because of his great mercy. Lamentations 3 says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Six days in a row, they got up early. God's mercy was new every morning. Luke I'm sorry, Joel chapter 2, it says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. God wants to relent over disaster. And we see that in Jonah, right? Jonah went and preached to Nineveh, that wicked city, and what happened? They turned to God and they repented. And what did, you, what did God do? He did not destroy them. He relented. Luke chapter 1, it was God's tender mercy that led to Jesus being sent to us. In Romans eleven thirty two, 32, it says, but God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. You guys ever need mercy and comfort in your life? Kids, I know I, my kids need mercy and comfort more than I can give it to them. But thankfully we have a heavenly Father who is the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. Hebrews four sixteen says, Let us then... With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what Rahab did, right? She drew near with confidence to the throne of grace and received mercy to find grace and help in time of need. 1 Peter 2, verse 10. Again, think Rahab here. Think Jericho. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then Titus chapter 3, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
So who are we in this story? Are we Joshua? Are we the people of Israel? We are those who need mercy. We are Jericho. In this story, you and I are Jericho. And just as with Jericho when the walls fell down and they were face to face with the ark of God, the walls of your life will come tumbling down and you will find yourself face to face with God himself and give account of your life before him. The Bible says it is appointed each one of us a time to die and after that the judgment. But he offers mercy through Jesus Christ. He circles each one of us with the love and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Be like Rahab. It was as if she had already heard the words of Joshua at the end of his life in Joshua 24, 15, when Joshua said, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods, the, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. You can almost hear Rahab saying, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We see God's holiness and his might and his justice. We'll be even more in awe of the mercy he displays to us. And we can say as Paul did in 1 Timothy 1, if you're already there, 1 verses 15 to 16. Applying this to our own lives and our own hearts and thinking of it from the perspective of someone in Jericho or someone like Rahab even, where Paul says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, of whom I am the worst, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the worst sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. I hope that when you read the story of Jericho, it's not all about walls falling down flat and Joshua as the commander of the army, but you read the story of Jericho and you see the example of God's patience and his mercy that he offers to us each and every single day. In the midst of his greatness and his holiness and his might, his mercies are new every single morning for you and for me. May we rejoice just as Paul did in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And with this we'll close. thinking about the example of patience and mercy that God gives us in verses 15 and 16 and in 17 Paul says to the king of the ages immortal invisible the only God be honor and glory forever and ever amen because of his mercy and his patience that he shows us he shows us Read for Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10 sometime on your own. Think about it from the perspective of Jericho, from the perspective of Rahab. And then apply it to your own heart and to your own life and see how God's mercy and his patience transforms us from sinners deserving of punishment and death 
to those who receive the steadfast love and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Because Jericho is a showcase of God's mercy. Will you uh, see what's offered to you? Will you see the power of God and turn away? Live in fear as Jericho did or be as Rahab and turn your eyes to the God of mercy. And with, through the blood of Jesus Christ, come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that uses the word like a sword to pierce our hearts, to show us where we need to be like you, where we need you and your mercy. I pray that your spirit would do your work through your word and your people. Today and forevermore, as you have promised. Thank you for the time this morning. Thank you for each one here. Thank you for these kids here. Thank you for how much you love them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jude says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. You guys are dismissed.